Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we are joined again by Michael Hendricks, a director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. Michael, thanks for coming back. It's an honor to be on again, and you're risking a second time around. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, you know what they say. It's like, fool me once, shame on you. If we have you back a second time then that's on us. If George W. Bush didn't say that, he should have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. Yes. So we wanted to have you on and talk a little bit about affordable housing in general. There's there's a lot of, seems to be an area of focus right now, and uh, even in national politics. And I believe the Manhattan Institute even had a rent regulation panel this morning. So I think we'll get into all that. But uh, let's start, I guess, at the federal level. There's a wide field of Democratic presidential candidates, and one of the leading contenders is Elizabeth Warren, who claims that she has a plan for just about everything. Can you tell us a little bit about her new plan? I believe that she just came out with something on affordable housing. Can you tell us a little bit about what she might be proposing right now? Yeah, I love how the Democratic presidential candidates have all discovered housing as an issue. This was not an issue before, but now they understand that a big portion of their base is centered in urban areas. And for those that live in urban areas, they're finding that they're paying more and more for housing and that a growing share of their voting base are renters who are also price pressured. And so Elizabeth Warren, most recently with her addendum to her much larger housing plan that she had released previously, and her addendum from um, this past Monday joins many of her fellow candidates, including Bernie Sanders, in making a big push toward investing more in public housing, regulating corporate landlords, and in their view, protecting renters' rights. This is probably right in line with what she has done, uh, at least in terms of protecting tenant rights, with her creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, of course, as someone who is, I'll admit my bias, more eager for more market-oriented plans and more markets in general in housing, I think that the ultimate failure of Senator Sanders' approach is that it's more plans when we need more markets, and it's more regulations to tackle the problems created by past regulations. And that's not really the solution that we need for housing in America. So I think you, I'm not sure if it was accidental or not. I think you just blended Senator Warren and Senator Sanders. What's what's different (laughs) between their plans, if anything? (laughs) It was a Freudian slip. I think Senator Sanders, compared to Senator Warren, invests much more in public housing, believes much more in public housing. Uh, He wants to invest trillions in more public housing. His ideas are kind of of a piece with what you'll see from the Green New Deal activists who, um, you know, a splinter group of them recently proposed also trillions. I don't know, by the way, where they get all these trillions of dollars, but... Oh, I do. (laughs) Do you know? I do, yes, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, Obviously, we've had a previous episode on uh, uh, what's known as modern monetary theory. Oh, yes, of course. It doesn't, it doesn't, the government... The government owns the printing presses, Michael. <laughs> so with the new trillions that we will print, we will, cr- we will erect vast new public housing 
projects across America because the prior generation worked so well of public housing. We're going to invest more in public housing. We're going to build more. We're going to rehab more. And as we rehab, this is something that Senator Warren pointed to as well. As we rehab, we're going to make these public housing units greener. And the whole idea is that by making these units uh, more plentiful, uh, be in better shape and be more efficient, that we'll be able to create not only a quote-unquote right to shelter that is backed by the government, but that we'll be able to make a dent in our climate woes and, to top it all off, be able to create jobs, jobs, and more jobs. Now, I also have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you, but anyway, that's that's the goal. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what's so wrong with this? Uh, I mean, I think that part of the issue is that there's not enough access to housing. There might not be enough units on the market. Isn't this a way to put more housing units on the market? Certainly, this is a way to add more housing units, just not on the market. So I think that Senator Warren's plan, in comparison to Senator Sanders' plan, actually does lean more, by comparison, it's a very low standard, but leans more into the market than Senator Sanders' approach. Senator Sanders essentially saying that the housing market is broken, that the only way that we can provide a right to shelter is to ensure that the government provides that housing um, and, and, and rations the housing that is currently available elsewhere. Um, if you want to see the logical endpoint of this, just look to the AOC of the New York State Legislature, State Senator Julia Salazar, who's Chief of Staff is now running for office who's proposed basically taking everyone's private property and socializing it. That's the way to make sure that everybody is housed. And that's the logical endpoint. We're not there yet, but everything points in that direction. Um, and it's essentially saying that the housing market is so bad and so broken and that we must have some emergency or even extreme measures that we haven't considered before, number one. Number two, that those emergency and extreme measures should fix what are assumed to be inherent problems in the marketplace. And of course, I can, you know, my, my counter to that is not that the market is broken, but that the market is not being allowed to work as it should. So if we do have a mismatch between housing demand and housing supply, we should first examine what barriers are in place for housing supply to better meet demand. Number one. And number two, to the degree to which we have people who are left out of the marketplace, both now and in the future, say someone who is at the very lowest levels of, of an area's median income, very, very, very poor individuals, that we do have options out there like housing vouchers. Or even in New York, if we were to assume that some degree of public housing is not going to disappear overnight, that housing stock is still there. But what we have to do is get the market to work better. And that includes even, by the way, very expensive housing for very wealthy people. Problem is we're not allowing a very little housing supply to hit the marketplace. We're taking whatever housing stock is being added and we're either placing it far afield from job centers or if it's close to job centers, especially in a place like New York, extracting as much value out of it as possible and reapportioning it to subsidized units and taxing it, adding impact fees and the like, you know, in California requiring 
solar panels and you name it. And then immense discretionary review for years so that whatever is actually built is very expensive. You know, and, and then we're saying that uh, you know, we're not going to allow even that more expensive housing to decay over time or to just what's called you know, by people who watch this housing market to allow filtering to occur, to allow units to over time go from being very expensive to perhaps being something more affordable. We've basically said none of that can occur. We're going to regulate the housing market to within an inch of its life. And then we're shocked, shocked to discover that the housing market's broken. And so we basically have a choice now between do we regulate to cover those shortfalls or do we free up the housing market and then allow, say, vouchers, cash reimbursements, whatever it may be, to make up any shortfalls for people who, especially in the interim, maybe before a new housing supply comes to the market, to allow those people to still be able to access housing. I want to get to some of the maybe regional differences, what we're seeing that's different approaches that state and local governments. But just to keep on this, I guess, national theme and sort of you know focused on the election, are there any of the Democratic candidates that you like the their approach to housing and, and, and also compare it to the record of the Trump administration? How, how has the Trump administration done on housing policy? First of all, I'm actually encouraged that so many Democratic candidates have taken on housing as a concern. I, I think they're absolutely right to say that this is something that is so widespread. The inability to afford housing by an increasing share of individuals. I think it's encouraging that Democratic candidates are recognizing that this is a problem for what housing affordability, for what they view as being very important in housing equity. So I would applaud any of the candidates that recognize, number one, that Land use decisions will still be made at the local level and to the degree to which localities are, in our constitutional system, creatures of the state, that the state does have a role to step in to lay out the parameters around which the localities can regulate land use. And uh, I think actually you see that with the exception of some of the more extreme candidates, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, we do actually see a sizable number of the candidates recognizing this fact and then also saying that if the problems are ones that states and localities need to tackle, number one, they need to tackle them by reforming land use regulations. And number two, we need to be able to encourage the, the national government, federal government, to at least have the right to the degree to which there is going to be a HUD and we're going to have you know, a Department of Transportation that money that flows into states and localities, the, the regulations that do apply should encourage uh, reforming land use regulations and not discourage it. It should be able to um, encourage localities even to compete with one another to improve their local regulatory environment. And that's actually what is most encouraging with some of the noise that we're hearing from the Trump administration recently. They've not only in the person of Secretary Carson stood up and said, yes, in my backyard, so, you know, if you're familiar with the Yes in My Backyard movement, it's a collection of people across the country, but especially in the coasts, who say, you know, we need to um, incur, we need to be able to lower the barriers to housing choice. If someone wants to build a duplex where there's a single family home and they own that property, they have a the ability to do so. We should lower those regulatory barriers where other neighbors tell you what to do with your property. 
we should be able to allow that kind of development where there's demand for it, um, which does not actually happen in over 90% of the country. So Secretary Carson has been making a stand for that. And I think that's absolutely right. And we've seen some more of the noise, say, around affirmatively furthering fair housing. It's one of the new rules that HUD is saying that they're going to be revising. Um, seems to be pointing in the direction of encouraging EMB forces, of you know setting a standard of housing availability and affordability as being a key means toward addressing housing segregation in America and being able to say that, look, if you can't even afford to enter into a community, you've set up a de facto wall around that community. We need to be able to encourage to the degree that we have um, funds directed toward communities, to the degree to which we have some oversight over communities. Um, we should be encouraging mayors to compete against one another to be able to rank highly in HUD's uh, own standard of what it means to affirmatively further fair housing and you know, be able to add some carrots and sticks to that. I think that's absolutely right. And the Trump administration should be applauded for that focus on affordable housing. We need to get more of that while still ensuring that the federal government does not nationalize this issue and especially does not make it not only not their role, but we need to make sure that it doesn't, that the toxic national political environment does not begin to infect the local conversation on housing, which right now actually seems maybe being hopeful, but seems more bipartisan. And I would love to encourage that. Local issues do not need to be terribly partisan. It needs to be about what's what's best for neighbors and communities. So let's turn then to the local issues. What are some of the things that are going on? I know that California and Minnesota come to mind as two places that are doing some things on affordable housing. What are some of the different approaches that are out there? Minnesota, I think, should be applauded. And by the way, every locality, to the degree to which they form their, they reform their housing regulations and land use regulations, is going to be distinct and a and a product of their own distinct political environments. In the case of Minneapolis, they should be applauded because they said um, across the city, we need to be able to allow duplexes and triplexes to be able to be built. So that means that you can have two units side by side, three units side by side, and that that should exist even in single family neighborhoods. Now that doesn't mean that the city is forced to build duplexes and triplexes. It just simply means that there's freedom to build them. That if there's people choosing that kind of housing stock, that there should be a freedom to be able to build that kind of housing stock. And so Minneapolis was able to use a was able to make arguments around equity, around the environment, e- even around tackling racism as being a reason for, you know, in their more heavily democratic and even socialist kind of constituency, that, hey, this is a reason why we should actually have more, more markets in housing, not less. And it worked. So through their comprehensive plan process, they were able to reform their zoning system and then just recently be able to pass through the city council um, the actual be able to actually put into law um, what the comprehensive plan should have taken place. So they, so so they so going to reform zoning, and there's going to be a process of you know still rewriting a lot of um, the particularities of the zoning law, but still the actual critical change has happened. Um, probably one of the best lines that I've seen coming out of Minneapolis that I think other localities should learn from is the phrase "neighbors from more neighbors." Those are the signs that you saw across Minneapolis, neighbors for more neighbors. And I think that's 
essentially the message that I'm personally in favor of. I think it, uh, that, that's what worked in Minneapolis and California. We've seen a lot of localities still be very resistant to reforming housing laws. And so the state has said this is a crisis across the state. It's no longer just, hey, Beverly Hills, you need to, you know, you need to be building not just three more housing units, but 3,000 more housing units is one recent change to uh, basically the housing quota at the state um, and regional level has recently said. We need to be going beyond that and saying that um, you know, across the state, uh, as, as California recently did, across the state, we need to remove every single barrier that stands in the way of building accessory dwelling units. So these are granny flats in the backyard. Um, and, you know, even as written, you could say that that even kind of implicitly allows duplexes across the state. I know especially that's the case in San Diego, as they wrote their um, ADU law. But, but basically what had happened was, even though California across the state had made it easier over the past handful of years to build ADUs, um, so much so that there's a 30-fold increase in permit applications after one of the more recent ADU reforms at the state level, a 30-fold increase in permit applications for ADUs in Los Angeles, you still had localities adding on more restrictions, more fees, more parking requirements. And the state finally said, enough's enough. This is a no-brainer. You know, if you are concerned about maintaining the character of neighborhoods, which is something that you hear a lot in California, this is a way to invisibly densify neighborhoods. You can have these backyard units, um, add more housing stock so that in-laws, your kids, students, teachers can be able to live in a neighborhood where they otherwise would not have been able to afford. And I think that that's, that's actually really significant. Now, it's interesting. There was a piece that I read this morning from City Observatory that pointed out that in uh, Portland, where they've made it much easier to build this so-called missing middle housing of duplexes, triplexes, ADUs, that one challenge that we're going to face is that more, more families are going to become landlords. They're not just going to be living in their own house. They're going to be renting out to someone else. And they're going to find that even as, say, progressive Yimbies especially have been fighting for this additional missing middle housing, while simultaneously giving into tenants, rights activists that have been penalizing landlords and making it much harder for them to evict someone, making it much harder to raise rents on someone, making it much harder to have any oversight whatsoever over their physical space, and making it much harder to recoup investments in their properties, that we're, we're going to find that we've actually made it extraordinarily difficult for these small family landlords to be able to not only make a dime, but not get sued out of existence um, simply for trying to do a good deed. Or, by the way, they may very well not, they may very well have very high rents to be able to pay for that additional risk of, say, being sued. They may only rent out on, say, uh, not a free market, but just a market of friends and family, or even a black market. And they're going to even potentially just rent out these units on Airbnb, um, which themselves are now being uh, legislated out of existence in some localities. So I think that we're going to see some um, surprising repercussions of some of these very good and very substantive housing reforms. And we're going to also see a tension 
growing within this housing conversation um, that may very well split the progressive side of the YIMBY movement um, between those that really are more favorable to tenants' rights and to public housing. They're going to be more of the public housing in my backyard or FIMBY activists. Um, and the people who really do see that this is a, a problem of regulation of markets that we need to be able to address at, at, at the end of the day. And they're going to find themselves having more in common with the libertarian and conservative market urbanists than they ever would have thought possible. Let's talk a little bit about, about Texas. We, we were just talking about California, and a lot of Californians seem to be moving to Texas. And this may have the potential of really putting pressure on uh, the affordable housing here in Texas, particularly in places like uh, North Texas, where I know that there's a great influx of people. Just a moment ago, you made a comment about that some of the people in California are uh, have concerns about preserving the the quality and the character of their neighborhoods. But I, I recently read a piece uh, talking about suburbs in uh, North Texas, and the author started talking about concerns about disposable housing. What do you what do you say to that? Should we be should we be concerned about our suburbs just being disposable housing? Well, I've written on this so-called disposable suburbs before in, in, in the Dallas Morning News. I know you did. Yeah. I know you did. That's right. That was me. <laughs> so, But I also want to point to one of our policy analysts, Connor Harris, who wrote a paper that he called Lone Star Slowdown. So I, I, I want to balance these, these perspectives. So, so first, I, I want to point to Connor's piece and say he's actually right. He argued in Lone Star Slowdown that although Texas laws facilitate so-called horizontal growth through exurban development, they severely restrict, especially in Austin, vertical growth or the redevelopment of built areas. And then even some places like Houston that, quite famous actually, in, in certain housing circles for not having real, any real zoning, um, still impose restrictions on development, more so than, than you would otherwise think. And so if we want to preserve the Texas miracle of economic growth, um, I think we need to be very careful and aware of the laws that actually restrict land use regulations and would make Texas become more of the California nightmare. Like in order to preserve the Texas miracle, we need to reform land use regulations so that we don't become the California nightmare. I think that's the message that I would have for Texas, especially as places like Houston and Dallas really grow out to the very limits of how far people are willing to drive into job centers and are finding that even with the growth, say, of you know, corporate headquarters in Frisco, Texas, in the northern Dallas suburbs, um, in, in Irving, out uh, west of Dallas, between Dallas and Fort Worth, um, that still is not really even coming close to the kind of jobs that are closer to downtown and even the kind of productivity that you get with kind of density in downtown central business districts. Now, all that's true. What I think is happening, and, and my argument with disposable suburbs, you know, I grew up in, in North Texas, and I know from growing up in, in Arlington, Texas specifically, that because Texas so freely allows the exurban sprawl while restricting any sort of density whatsoever, um, that what you get is a lot of just very cheap housing thrown up very quickly that stretches out far as the eye can see. And it tends to age pretty poorly, and it tends to rely on a lot of public investment 
in roads, pipes, and wires in order to facilitate the private dollars flowing into this kind of housing. Problem is that the very low-dense sprawl requires a massive investment in fire hydrants, roads, things like that. But because it's so low density and such poor quality, you don't tend to get much in the way of, say, property tax revenue back from these kind of developments that would pay for the upkeep of this kind of development 30 years down the line when the upkeep bill finally starts to hit. So what I saw happening uh, in places like Arlington is Arlington doesn't disappear. It has hundreds of thousands of people even still. But often you find that you know the, the young families maybe that first moved into, say, my family's neighborhood, by the time the bill comes for their own house's upkeep and the upkeep of their own roads, once that hits and the decay starts to happen, they get out. They move on to the next new suburb that just popped up and is, has a nice, fresh new housing stock. And then another 20 years down the line, when that begins to fade, they move on again. And maybe that's fine. This is the filtering process that I'm, I quite like. But what often happens is you leave behind the bill for families that may not have, much poorer families, they may not have the ability to care for it. Or just, they just let decay sink in. And I think I'm, I'm on the side of local governments being much wiser in how they spend their money on the roads, the pipes, and the wires, much wiser about having local land use regulations that incur, that allow for mixed-use development, that allow for the kind of traditional main streets that we once had in, in communities, and allow for that kind of adaptive reuse that we saw on main streets, but you didn't really see with the circuit cities, or you didn't really see with some of the kind of more cheaply made single-family housing stock, where once it ages, that's really it. Um, there's, it requires so much money to redevelop, um, say, vast acres of mandated parking, vast acres of, this, of, of asphalt with a circuit city that was built only in a particular way to look a particular way. It costs so much money to redo it, they just often sit abandoned. Um, I'd much rather have localities build something that's much more, like encourage much more sustainable building over time. I don't think it's about, say, we prefer one style over another of development or even mandating it. I think that's dangerous territory. But I think that we need to make it much easier, as it is not today in Texas, to build that kind of much more sustainable development over time. Because um, I think the demand is there. And I really think that, uh, you know, that will help encourage localities over time to be much more, you know, much, much shrewder about how they develop over time. So they're not faced with that big bill 20 to 30 years down the line. You've, you mentioned Yimbyism, and I've seen uh, some writers like Richard Florida over at uh, City Lab write occasionally something to the effect that, and I believe they're citing some reports that just simply building more units doesn't necessarily drive down uh, housing costs. Right. Uh, explain that a little bit. Do you buy that and explain why that might be? This is actually quite complicated. There's a question of timing. Second, there's a question of um, location. So number one, over time, more housing supply meeting demand will bring 
will help curb excessive rises in the cost of housing, whether that's in terms of rents or the ability to buy a house. Number two, it depends on where the housing is being built. So if uh, the housing is being built far away from job centers, that may be a challenge for people to be able to access that housing. Um, So for instance, in New York, you have an immense rise in housing development in northern New Jersey. So you have scaling of housing in New Jersey, but not a scaling in transportation that allows people to readily get from northern New Jersey into, into New York. And so there's still an immense demand to be physically in Manhattan. So then the other point that I'd make is that, you know, if you allow some new housing, but you've also restricted housing in, you know, vast portions of the rest of of a city, like, I I still think that there's going to be a housing affordability problem. This is is often why reforms like um, Minneapolis's citywide or even a metro-wide reform to, to housing law actually makes a lot of sense. Because you want to you want to take in one fell swoop the entire city, have all the neighborhoods in this together to be able to allow more housing development. I actually think that, you know, while there's um, you know, there was one study that came out of Chicago that called into question just how much of this new housing supply will bring down housing costs. I don't think that he the author of that piece, um, Yuna Framark, actually critiquing the the more Yimby housing supply needs to meet housing demand kind of argument. He's just saying, let's be cautious about it. In some cities, the housing market is going to work differently than in others. And in this, in these handful of neighborhoods that I studied, in a handful of instances, I did not find in the years in which I was studying this, in a you know, in a, an immediate and substantial effect on lowering the price burden of housing. We've seen other evidence elsewhere across America that does show that helping housing markets to work better does actually work. And I think that we need to we need to still be focusing on that. Yeah, I, I think that we need to be focusing on that. I, I, I think that I think we need to understand that this is a, a process that could take some time, but we need to be starting that process now because the fight's not going to be easy. So I want to ask one final question. So what does Nicole Gelinas have against people selling tasty churros in New York subways? I personally like tasty churros in subways. Now, to be fair, I don't like the rats eating the left behind churros, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I, so, so speaking, speaking for myself, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of food trucks, food carts, mobile food vending, I think that this is the best of small business and entrepreneurship in America. And it's the kind that's most accessible to low-income, minority, or immigrant Americans. And right now in New York City, we've set a stringent cap on the number of permits that we allow for mobile food vendors. We haven't changed that rent cap, really, or that, that permit cap since the 1980s. And as a result, as more people have wanted to sell on the streets, be able to have some mobile food vending, uh, there's been a growing black market where now you pay around $25,000 at least on the black market to be able to sell what are really a pretty low margin uh, food products. So what you get here is food carts and food trucks clustered in high traffic areas, whether it's in Midtown or it's in subway platforms, and they sell very kind of the highest margin, lowest quality kind of food. Because by the way, all the food is controlled by a couple of core 
um, commissaries that are also regulated by the city. And I think, honestly, when I've talked with Nicole, again, I don't want to speak for her. She's a delightful colleague of mine. You know, I think that's really been one concern that she's had is congestion, crowding, and, you know, excess uh, smoke from, from charcoal fires and all that kind of stuff that comes from all that clustering, to which I just say, you know, well, then we need to free up that market. And there could be a role for the city to, the city should be regulating public health, public safety, and they do traditionally have a role over, yes, land use. And so if, if we deem it as a community a value to make sure that sidewalk and street, these public right-of-ways are being effectively and efficiently and fairly parceled out to vendors, that we create sort of a market for the permit to vend within particular high-traffic areas, I think that's fine. We just don't have that now. And we need to have a freer market for more of these people to be able to vend. And then we need to have the city government adopting its right role not creating more of a black market. All right. Well, Michael, thank you very much for coming back. It's great to be on air with you guys. 